Hello there, friends. Welcome to This Good Word. I'm Steve Weens. And I got to tell you, I started this podcast really with a thought that I would just be sharing my thoughts, sharing my ramblings, my concerns about the world, my observations, my hopes. And then somewhere along the line, I started meeting really fascinating people and reading their books. And so I interviewed them and I interviewed more and more of them. And then I noticed lately that I've been doing less and less of what I'm gonna do today. And I think there's an ebb and a flow to all this stuff. So all is well, but I'm feeling that there are several weeks here in a row now that I just have some stuff that I would like to share with you. And today I wanna talk about Archbishop Oscar Romero, who's gonna be canonized. He'll be officially, uh, he'll become a saint in the Catholic Church this Sunday. And Oscar Romero has long been a hero of mine. uh, And so I wanna tell his story. And then I wanna share some thoughts in this violent time in which we live. Maybe some inspiration that we can take from Archbishop Romero. Uh, He was assassinated in 1980 on March 24th. So it has been nearly 40 years since his assassination. And there's some thoughts uh, that I'd like to share uh, with you about things I've learned and things I'm observing these days uh, about how to have conversations and how to uh, stand up for the kinds of things that Oscar Romero stood up for. So uh, in the 1970s, uh, civil war was looming in El Salvador. That's where Oscar Romero is from. That's where he lived his whole life. Uh, there was government oppression. Uh, there was essentially uh, what was called the 14 families who controlled all the land and all the wealth in El Salvador. So there was just a very few, very wealthy, very powerful families and people. And then there was the rest of the country, which uh, was mired in poverty, peasant workers, teachers, and there began to be these protests, teachers unions, peasant workers, and there was even some leftist guerrilla forces that began to take up arms against the military, against the government. And then there began to be these priests who began to be vocal in their support of the poor and in their confrontation and uh, denouncement of these 14 families and the way that wealth was being um, hoarded by just a few and how the poor were just getting poorer. So the priests started to become, uh, you might say, political. They, they started to speak out against the vast injustice because they, as they did their weddings and did their funerals and met with their parishioners, they saw the pain. They saw the uh, hungry kids. They saw the depressed fathers. They saw the women who were working hard just to try to put to get, put a meal on the table in the 1970s in El Salvador. And their hearts began to break for these people. But what happened was these priests that were supporting the peasant workers and confronting the 14 families and the government, they began to be expelled from the country. They were beaten. They were imprisoned. Families began to be separated. People began to disappear uh, from families and were never heard from again. 
there was widespread rape and uh, all all the similar kinds of things that happen, horrific, terrible things that happen when a corrupt government is trying to support the status quo and uh, follow the instructions of those in power to keep the wealthy wealthy and keep the poor poor. Uh, as a way of controlling these families, there was, again, there was rape, murder, separation of families as a way to control them as a, and as a way to try to silence them. Well, Oscar Romero became the fourth archbishop of San Salvador in 1977. And soon after uh, he became archbishop, his friend and fellow priest, Rutilio Grande, Father Rutilio Grande, who was himself outspoken against uh, the 14 families and against the government, uh, he was killed. And it deeply affected Oscar Romero, who really before that time really wasn't much of a voice against the powerful. But this moment in time when his dear friend was killed for speaking out against those in power and for the poor, uh, it was a moment for him. It deeply, deeply affected him. And so uh, Oscar Romero was born in 1917. So when he became archbishop, he was 60 years old. And after, uh, after wrestling with uh, the kinds of things that he was seeing in his country and after his friend Father Grande was killed, he began to ran uh, uh, he began to run a church commission that investigated human rights abuses. Now, uh, in this government and 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 the uh, the the TV stations, the the government run radio stations, they weren't reporting any of the atrocities that were happening. It was all it was all carefully concealed, and so Romero began to see his job as to as to make as public as possible the atrocities that were happening. So uh, because the government wasn't going to do it, he ran a church commission that investigated the human rights abuses, these families that were being separated, these people that were being um, kidnapped and raped. And he would openly denounce violence on both sides. He would denounce the guerrilla forces that were taking up arms against the military. He would say that any violence, that violence included, even when it is for the cause of justice, when you take up arms, uh, even for the cause of justice, Romero would say the ends don't justify the means. When you use violence to confront violence, all you get is more violence. That was his fundamental message over and over again. So you can see uh, that he was uh, he was um, affected by people like Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, he was in, he, he, he was a prophet in that way of nonviolence, in the way of Jesus, in the way of MLK Jr., in the way of Gandhi and many others. And what he would do in his weekly homilies when he would celebrate mass, he would begin to do things like he would name the victims of murder. He would name those who had disappeared. And uh, they begin to broadcast these homilies on the radio. And so Oscar Romero's radio homilies would be essentially the newscasts for the poor. Because again, the state-run media, 
they weren't reporting any of the institutional violence that was happening. And so this was happening over and over again. And so for the poor, Romero became really, and he was called this over and over again, he was a voice for the voiceless. When he named people who were, um, who, who had disappeared or who, who were murdered, when he named them from the pulpit in his church, and then when it was broadcast over the radio, that was his nonviolent response and resistance to say, you can't, if, if the state-run media won't run these stories, if the government won't investigate human rights abuses, then I will use my position as a prophet in the Church of Jesus Christ to confront the political systems of the day that are abusing their power and keeping people in poverty in poverty and using their power to silently and systematically uh, erase these people. Again, the murders, the, ex the expelling of the priests, the imprisoning of the priests. And so you can see that uh, Oscar Romero became a hero for the poor, but he also uh, created lots and lots of enemies, people that saw the power that he was having, people that didn't like the fact that he was confronting the abuse of power. And so uh, he, he uh, became a person who was in danger for his life. And in fact, on March 24th, 1980, he was celebrating mass and he was assassinated. He was 62 years old. So this is just two, a little over two years from when he was named Archbishop of San Salvador. And when he died, when he was assassinated, uh, people felt orphaned. People felt like their voice was taken away. People felt that their hope for change uh, had disappeared. And, you know, in the same way that in the United States, maybe uh, people of a certain generation remember where they were when JFK got assassinated or remember where they were when they heard about the Twin Towers being uh, being struck by those planes. That was that was uh, this was the moment for the people of El Salvador. Um, and um, you have to know that during this time in the 1970s and into the 1980s, the United States government was supporting the military regime, uh, the corrupt military regime in El Salvador. So you got that going on for us. And after Romero died, the fighting lasted uh, this. So uh, his assassination essentially accelerated the conflict and the fighting lasted another 12 brutal years, ending in 1992 after claiming 75,000 lives. Think about that, 75,000 lives. Uh, half a million El Salvadorans were displaced. Many fled to the U.S. as refugees. And Oscar Romero, who's quoted many times in Liberation theolo by Liberation theologians and in moments uh, where it seems like violence is winning, we hear the voice of the voiceless, Oscar Romero. And I want to read a quote from him. And then I want to share some thoughts about how I think his, um, his way and his strategy and his passion and his commitment to nonviolence can lead the way. 
So here's the quote. Um, We might be left without a radio station, but God's best microphone is Christ. Christ's best microphone is the church, and the church is all of you. Let each one of you, in your own job, in your own vocation, nun, married person, bishop, priest, high school or university student, day laborer, wage earner, market woman, one in your own place, live your faith intensely and feel that in your surroundings, you are a true microphone of God our Lord. I want to read that again because it is packed full of such good stuff. We might be left without a radio station, Romero said, but God's best microphone is Christ. Christ's best microphone is the church, and the church is all of you. So let each one of you, in your own job, in your own vocation, nun, married person, bishop, priest, high school or university student, day laborer, wage earner, market woman, one in your own place, live the faith intensely and feel that in your surroundings, you are a true microphone of God, our Lord. Oh my gosh. Think about that. All of you. Christ's best microphone is the church and the church is all of you. Now, oh my gosh, I just feel like there are some thoughts. We are fresh off of Uh, the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court that was fraught with a Supreme Court hearing that was angry and dismissive on all sides, on all sides, and where it seemed like the powerful one. Now, I know that's a very complex situation, and there are those that say, well, should uh, a person be allowed to be accused without corroboration? And like, is that okay? Is that okay for uh, the justice system to to operate, uh, you know, that way? Others, Others say that we should have taken much more time, as much time as we can, in order to prove that these allegations by Dr. Ford either were true or not true, uh, and we'll never, folks, we'll likely never know. What I want to observe, though, in the tactics leading up to it on both sides, and when I say both sides, I am not talking about Dr. Ford. I am talking about the Democrats and the Republicans have been and are using violent tactics uh, throughout this whole process. And you see, when you see the anger, uh, especially from even Justice Kavanaugh, uh, Lindsey Graham, but also some Democrats, uh, let's be honest, Eric Holder and others, uh, you, you see that there's not a lot of confidence in the way of Bishop Archbishop Romero, MLK Jr., 
uh, Gandhi and Jesus that the way of nonviolence is the way of change. When I hear some of the anger from the Republicans, especially white men, I see a kind of frantic fear that power is slipping through their fingers like sand. And it it is no and and yes, oh, it's it's complex. I, I I realize that it's complex. But what I see is a kind of desperation. And I say that because I talk to I am a white man. I'm a middle-aged white man, age 47. I talk to lots of white men, some who are liberal, some who are conservative, and they have lots of different reactions to all that is happening. But I'm sensing a kind of communal um fear, but also for the very first time, like I heard this the other day that someone said, as a white man, I'm beginning to be afraid to walk around because people are thinking certain things about me that aren't true about me just because I'm a white man. Now, think about that for a second. Just think about that for a second. Because if you are a person of color, if you're a black person in, in the US, that has been true uh, about you walking outside your house for every day of your entire life. You are walking around. If, if you're a black person in America, you are walking around and you are wondering what people think about you just because of the color of your skin. And it's just recently that white men are now having that feeling too. Uh, and, and you can say, well, they shouldn't be having that feeling. They still hold all the power. But I'm, I'm telling you, this is what I hear from people. And it come and I hear people saying like the grant that I applied for went to a person of color and that's not fair, even though I deserved it more. It went to someone else. Uh, I was discriminated against because of my color and I'm a white man. Okay, think about that for a second. <laughs> I laugh. It's not funny, but if if white men are now, um, at least like like smelling the, the 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 smallest whiffs of being discriminated against because of their gender and their and the color of their skin then what i would say to myself when i have those feelings is welcome to the experience of most of the world welcome to the experience of everyone else in the United States of America who doesn't have white skin and isn't a male. <laughs> so the question is, how are you going to react to that? That growing sense that things are changing? How are you going to interact with people? How are you going to listen and learn? And how are you going to not resort to this thing of like, well, everyone's telling me just to sit down and shut up now? No, no. maybe listen. And maybe sometimes sit down and be quiet, but don't, don't resort to that sort of pouty, oh, now everyone's telling me to sit down and shut up. You know, that sounds a lot like a 13 year old, to be honest with me, <laughs> with you. Feel all the feelings that you actually feel, but then take it a step deeper and say, how might this experience of me walking outside my door in certain places and being worried that I might be thought of as a certain kind of white man when I don't think I'm like that. Instead of getting defensive about that, take that as like now you have the slightest, tiniest, little, teeniest little whiff of what it must be like to be a person of color in the U.S.
to be a woman in the U.S. still. And maybe use that as a way of, of trying to understand what it's like to be on the other side of the power spectrum. And as a middle-aged white man who's educated, who lives in the suburbs, talking about myself, I will admit, because I am a white man who has education, I am on the side of power and there are ways that I benefit from that that I do not, I'm not even aware of. And that happens many, 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 many times every day. And I don't even, I'm not even aware of it because it's just the air I breathe. So now that things, the, 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 the balance of power, though slow, is changing. And the question is, what are we going to do with that change? So let's go back to Romero. So um, what would it look like for you if you're in a position like I am, where you've occupied power, a position of power because you were born that way? Uh, what would it look like for you to begin to be a voice for the voiceless? Now, <clears throat> if you, <laughs> I'm going to get a little, maybe too vulnerable here, but if you follow me on the socials, Twitter and Facebook, especially, I've just made some decisions lately to as, as honorably as I can to start to be a voice for those who do not feel empowered. I've started to use whatever collateral I have, whatever whatever voice I have to choose to not further um, the are those already in power, but to begin to give voice to those who are without power, who don't feel empowered. That's reflected in some of the podcast guests that I've had in the last months. It's reflected in some of the Facebook posts that I've made. It's reflected in some of the opinions that I share uh, just regarding the political process these days. And some of the feedback that I'm getting from really good people and, uh, well, some really good people, uh, is that I'm not being fair. I I'm, I'm not being equal. I'm not equally, uh, critiquing, you know, sort of both sides. And to that, I want to say fair enough where there is violence being done. I need to critique, um, Democrats as well as Republicans, Republicans as well as well as Democrats. Um, and I think I can probably even do a better job of that. Having said that, I am choosing these days to um, <clears throat> to offend uh, those in power, like myself, <laughs> to offend people like myself, um, so that people that are disempowered or don't feel as empowered uh, can have a voice. I'm doing it imperfectly. I don't know nearly enough. I'm trying to learn as much as I can, but I'm trying to follow people like Romero who is saying, who said, I will, I will use my voice to be a voice for the voiceless. I am not, believe me, oh my gosh, I am so far from uh, the courage that he had. I am writing Facebook posts, ladies and gentlemen. I am broadcasting podcasts. My life is not in danger. Um, but I'm doing what I can be doing, and I'm doing it intentionally. So my question for you is, if you're passionate these days, what can you do beyond just ranting on Facebook? And that's a start. I don't think that means nothing. But beyond that, what can you do to be a voice for the voiceless? Number one, you need to hear their voices in person. You need to sit down with folks who have 
in, in these days who have been sexually assaulted. Uh, you need to sit down with people of color. You need to sit down with any group of people that are, um, that are feeling disempowered and just listen. That's how you become a voice for the voiceless. And when you do that, so that's sort of reflection number one. Reflection number two, when you do that, there, there just will be resistance from those in power. Um, and that resistance will look a lot of ways. It'll, it'll be straight up, um, uh, straight up threats. It'll be passive aggressive statements. It'll be polite pushback. It'll be all, all those things. And that's all, that's just all part and parcel of, of, of the game. If you're going to use your voice to try to learn, uh, about people who are disempowered and who, um, who have lived in generational oppression, talking about women, talking about people of color in the US and elsewhere, especially if you're a white man, then you need just to, you, and, and you start to use your voice to listen, you will begin to be affected, just like Romero was when his friend, Father Grande, was killed. You'll, you'll begin to be affected by these stories. You'll begin to deeply question um, the uh, structures and systems that you have benefited from. And those are uncomfortable feelings and uncomfortable conversations that you'll begin to have with people. People that you are your friends maybe will start to um, have, start to question where your motivations are. And this is, so point number two, reflection number two, there will be resistance. And you just gotta be okay with that. And um, respond um, nonviolently, right? Um, you know, Michelle, Michelle Obama's quote, when we go, when they go low, we go high. Yep, absolutely. But what that means is, um, it, it really takes effort to not demonize someone or subtly think that you have it all going on and they are just an idiot because they don't get your, your point. And so, um, in addition to hearing the voices of the voiceless, Sometimes you need to, when it's safe, I'm not talking about with people who are trolls, quote unquote, but when it's safe to sit down and listen to the people who critique you. I, I've done this lately, intentionally sitting across the table from people in restaurants that do not agree with me. And I have had honestly really, really good conversations with them. Um, I'm picturing two, two in my mind right now where I was, the conversation I was having. And honestly, it was good for me. And we didn't leave agreeing. We really didn't in either case. But we left hopefully understanding a little more. And that is important. That's a nonviolent way to express disagreement across table, <laughs> having a meal. <laughs> hopefully, you're not going to start throwing queso sauce at each other. Uh, but um, nonviolence needs to go beyond Facebook and Twitter and get across the table from people that you need to listen to because they're being oppressed and people that disagree with you. And, uh, so that's, that's reflection number three is that we, when we interact, let's interact relationally and nonviolently. Uh, and the only way I know how to do that is to listen but also share your perspective as truly and straightly, directly and kindly as you know how to do. And, um, and then maybe reflection number four is 
we really do need to denounce violence on all sides. When we see now, violence is not a prophetic critique. Violence is not saying so-and-so made this decision and I think it's wrong. That's not violence. Violence is demonizing somebody. Violence is any kind of physical violence, but violence is also resorting to bullying, name calling, dismissing uh, automatically, um, and sort of gaslighting. That's, that's violence. That's a violent response. And I don't care if you are, if you're trying to be a voice for the voiceless and trying to work for justice, but you are gaslighting, you are bullying, you are uh, demonizing, then you are using the, the, the very same tactics that got us here in the first place and it won't work. It'll just lead to more oppression and more violence. Okay, lastly, last thought, last reflection in these days is um, be affected. Allow yourself to be affected. Don't um, resort to, to going numb because it's so hard. Now you're gonna have to do self-care. You're gonna have to figure out ways that you engage and disengage the rhythms of engagement in justice and um, rest for your soul, Sabbath, you know, turning off the news at a certain time every day. These are all things that, that like you are not created to be a nonstop 24 seven justice machine. It doesn't work. You know how, no matter how passionate you are, um, you need to have self-care. Um, so be affected and, uh, practice self-care. Uh, I don't know that that's a spectrum. I don't think it is. I think it's more like two different disciplines. Allow yourself to feel, allow yourself to watch and listen to those painful moments. Allow yourself to go there, to mourn, to lament, to cry, to weep, to get mad. Allow yourself to feel uh, the, the injustice that you see. Don't, don't turn aside from it. You can, you'll just become, as my friend Lynn Heibel says, less human. If you turn toward it, it's going to be exhausting. It, it, it really will. There's no way around that. Um, and that is why you have to have rhythms of engaging and disengaging. One day a week where you're not reading any social media or interacting with the news, not, you know, doing the news cycle 24 seven, uh, there are certain people that you're going to need to stop engaging with because it's going nowhere and no one's going to change each other's minds. I just had an interaction with someone, uh, and I could just tell, like, I'm in general, a very, I value conversation, but this wasn't going to go anywhere. And so I was as direct as I could about what I believed and we left it there. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not interacting with this person anymore and that's okay. That's healthy. Right. Um, so folks, um, I, I honestly hope that this has been helpful. And um, on, on this one, I would like to know, um, you can email me steve at steveweens.com or you can tweet at me at steveweens or go on my Facebook. Um, I think it's Steve Weens author. Uh, and, and let me know. Um, let me know how this was helpful or what questions you have. And we can interact back and forth and we can maybe start a thread about how to live in these crazy times 
when uh, it's just so hard, so easy to resort to demonizing, bullying, violence on all sides. And let's not pretend that one side has got it right and one side has got it all wrong, especially in the Republican-Democrat thing. No, no, folks, no. Republicans and Democrats are roughly equally slimy in terms of their strategies, in terms of how they use power. And uh, we're not going to win the ball game, so to speak, by completely aligning with one or the other. Now, you can say, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican. That's great. Uh, Vote, vote your conscience. Yep, absolutely do it. I'm going to vote my conscience. And, folks, we might be left without a radio station But God's best microphone is Christ, and Christ's best microphone is the church, and the church is all of you. So let each one of you, in your own job, in your own vocation, nun, married person, bishop, priest, high school or university student, day laborer, wage earner, market woman, one in your own place, live your faith intensely and feel that in your surroundings you are a true microphone of God our Lord. In it together, my friends, we are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together. See you next week. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.